Welcome to the last episode of season one of Getting on the Green. We heard from some amazing guests this season, which include brokers to lawyers, investors to social justice advocates, and much more. We grew in viewership and interest, and we're getting some great feedback from our listeners, so keep that coming. In this episode of the final episode of season one, we have two people who are very close to my heart. Uh, we have my father and one of my two sisters, uh, Elisa Merlin and Robert Merlin. They are both Miami, Florida, born and raised. They both went to UF Law and graduated from there. And they are both practicing attorneys um, in South Florida who have a small little uh, touch to real estate. So it'll be interesting to find out how they got into real estate, uh, what they're doing now, and so forth. Um, my sister Elisa did get an LLM from Georgetown Law, so um, that focused in taxation. Um, so we'll hear some more from them, and uh, we'll get a little better idea about who they are, what they do, and how real estate has affected their life. So I'm really excited to get going. So here we go. So welcome, Elisa and Robert. Thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate having you on. Uh, not only is it a great uh, episode for information, but it's kind of like a small family reunion, which is awesome. We should get some great content here. So thanks for being with us. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. So I uh, just gave a brief background about uh, kind of your education, where you're from, uh, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, so Elisa, why don't you go first? Okay, my name is Elisa Merlin. I am born and raised in Miami. I'm a tax attorney and I work at DeRote and Ben Simon. I work in our Aventura office. We also have an office in Boca Raton. Uh, we are tax attorneys focusing on domestic and international estate planning, on IRS compliance work, on um, basically all sorts of private client wealth planning. Alrighty, and how about you, uh, Father slash Robert? I'm Robert Merlin, commonly known as Bob Merlin. I'm a second generation Miamian, so my children are third generation Miamians. I'm a collaborative family attorney and certified mediator. I help people who are in, have family disputes, so to speak, um, resolve their differences without going to court and I prepare a lot of prenuptial agreements and postnuptial agreements. I describe myself as a peacemaker. All right, so basically this episode is um, kind of me trying to highlight how anybody can be involved in real estate and there are a bunch of different ways that somebody can be involved in real estate uh, from you know, being a hard money lender to actually being an investor, being a manager, this and that. There's a lot of different ways. So I kind of wanted to touch uh, base with you all and see where you started in real estate, how you're associated to it, if you're still doing that now, and kind of what you're doing now, how your job um, kind of relates to the real estate field, uh, which basically makes you all experts in your own niches of real estate. Um, so Elisa, how does... How did you get uh, kind of your your toe in or your foot in the door in real estate? Where, when did what did you do first? I guess come in contact with dealing with your own real estate or you know investing or something along those lines. Well, I purchased a condominium on Brickell Key for personal use in 2012, and then converted that to an investment um, rental property. Um, probably in 20. 
2017. So I've been holding that as a rental property since. That's the extent of my um, individually owned real estate. However, I'm an equity owner in a family partnership that owns interests in various real estate investments around the city. So do you know or do you have a specific reason why you held on to that apartment? Did you have, I don't know, some sort of inside information that the market was going to go up or, or you know, the, were the rents great in that area? Why did you hold on to that versus selling it? To be honest, it hadn't appreciated as much as I had hoped that it would at that time. Um, uh, the rent also isn't amazing, but um, the hope is that in time it will appreciate, you know, decades down the line. It's a waterfront property um, in a beautiful, well-kept building, so hopefully the um, value will stay there. Okay. And so how about you, uh, Bob? How... It's weird calling you Bob as opposed to father, but you know, to, to stay professional, let's let's keep it at uh, at Bob. How did how did you first get into real estate? Shortly after I graduated from law school and came back to Miami, um, I was looking at a condominium. Actually, some friends of mine and I were looking at a condominium to invest in, and I wound up buying a unit, uh, borrowing money to do it, but buying a unit. And my friends and I created a joint venture and bought a unit there as well. Um, I subsequently invested in another condominium in North Miami. Um, then some friends and I created a different venture, purchased an out parcel up in Broward County where there was a Dunkin' Donuts. And we made some money on that. I have... I and the family have invested in limited partnerships that purchase apartment buildings, uh, mostly in the South, Texas and, and uh, Florida especially. I've also invested in shopping centers and limited partnerships. And we purchased a home um, shortly after we got married, we built equity in the home. We sold that. We moved to another home. We've built equity in that. So that's certainly part of being invested in real estate. That happens to personally help you because you build up your wealth while you're living in it. Uh, so that's that's definitely one of the aspects of real estate that people don't necessarily always take into account. They think real estate and they're thinking, you know, investing in properties and this and that. And Investing in your own lifestyle and your own home and building equity is a great way of being involved in real estate with, you know, you can easily rent and potentially get, you know, a bigger place for cheaper. But if you're building equity in your own property, then you're keeping that actual value. So let's let's fast forward a little bit. We, we heard how you guys kind of got involved in real estate. So let's let's talk about how real estate is involved in your lives now. So as a tax attorney, Elisa, what are you doing for your clients or in your daily work life that has to do with real estate? So part of our practice is advising uh, our, our foreign clients on their investment in U.S. real property, which is super relevant in South Florida because so much of the property is purchased by non-U.S. persons. And... Um, the main gist of this is that there, for non-U.S. persons who purchase property in South Florida, which is a day-to-day, -day, like, huge, um, very prevalent um, 
situation, uh, there's huge exposure to estate taxes or transfer tax um, in, the, in their lifetime. Um, U.S. persons have uh, an exemption from estate tax of $11.5 million each. Non-U.S. persons have an, an exemption of $60,000. Wow, that's so a huge difference. Huge difference. So even if you're talking about a non-U.S. person that owns a $200,000, $300,000 condo, at their death, they're going to wind up paying 40% of that to the government as opposed to it going to their family. So if you if there are non-U.S. persons that own um, properties down here, um, let's say in a disregarded entity or a replicable trust or in their individual name, they're open to major taxes at their death or if they gifted um, during their lifetimes. So by setting up a structure, by putting out any sort of an effort and um, reaching out to an attorney and setting up a structure, they can go from paying 40% of the net value of their asset to paying no estate taxes if the structure is done right. And uh, obviously, I mean, this is probably a silly question, but everything you're doing is perfectly legal in terms of U.S. law, correct? Yeah. So these are just basically things that not everybody knows either exist or how to do that you provide a service for them basically and help to save them money? That's correct. So at what point are they coming to you? Is it when they want to invest? Is it when they've already purchased? Is it when they're making their estate? It's usually after they've already purchased, which could be complicated. The best, best, best case scenario would be for a non-U.S. person to do this before coming to the U.S., before becoming a U.S. person, and before purchasing it. Or, you know, if they're a non-U.S. person, it could be um, once they've purchased it as well, because when they're not U.S., they have more freedom to transfer things. They, they're not um, subject to taxes once they become U.S. persons. Also, if you do it after you've purchased, then you could potentially have transfer issues if you're transferring it into a company, or it, de it depends on the facts. So best case scenario would be do before to do be to do it before the purchase but um, we see it um, yeah sure mostly. all different all different ways people kind of like to put the the band-aid on until it's bleeding through um, yes. so are you helping them to invest or like find specific properties or are you just saying hey you want to do this let's structure it this way more the, more the second more the latter so so can you talk a little bit about a couple of different structures that they can, I guess, that exist or that they can put it in? Um, I, I don't... Absolutely. So the, choosing a structure depends on what someone's trying to do with the property, if they're going to flip it or if they're going to hold it, you know, if they want it to be in the family and it's, they know it's going to go to the next generation. Because not only do you have to think about transfer taxes, but you also have to think about income taxes on a sale of the property down the line. If you're a non-U.S. person, in addition to income taxes on a sale, there's an additional tax um, imposed called the FERPTA, which is an automatic 15% withholding on the transfer of U.S. real property by a non-U.S. person. So um, another factor in, in choosing what sort of a structure you're going to use, in addition to um, you know the, the holding period that's intended for the property, is what sort of control you're willing to give up because there's a trust structure and there's also a corporate structure. But if you put it in a trust, you're giving up some control because it, it has to be an irrevocable trust for it to act as an estate tax blocker for a non-U.S. person. Um, if it's an irrevocable trust, it's considered the same as the, as the non-U.S. person and it doesn't serve any purpose for um, 
protecting you from estate taxes. Um, on the other hand, if you put it in a corporate structure, uh, you have more control, but you also have two layers of taxes. You have corporate tax, you pay at the corporate level, and you also pay at the individual level. Um, so it really depends on the client and um, what makes most sense given the property and given their um, propensity for risk and um, what they want to do. So what type of information basically do you need to get from a client in order to basically make that decision of what's best for them? Uh, are you like sitting down with them and talking for hours, finding out their life story or, you know, what type of information leads somebody other than the two, the things you said, um, the time that they're trying to hold it and what type of, of uh, you know, control they want. Other than that, how, how are they deciding that? Or how are you discovering what they actually want without them knowing what they want? Yeah, it's, it's important to go through a lot. You Well, you have to start at the most basic level of understanding how it is that they're a foreign person and whether if by accident they're a U.S. person. Um, so because you can become a U.S. person just by days that you spend in the U.S., even if you don't have a green card and even if you're not a passport, passport holder. So, you know, we have to start at the most basic level and make sure they're not even a U.S. person um, unbeknownst to them, although most non-U.S. persons spending time in the U.S. are pretty aware of their days in the U.S. Um, but then we need to have an idea of what other assets they may hold in the U.S. We need to know if they... Um, if they are involved in a U.S. trade or business or if this is just their only tie to the U.S., it's important to have an idea of um, what they do and what they have here. So are you involved in 1031 exchanges at all or do you refer yeah. people out so you're you're actually dealing with them? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's more on the domestic side generally, but yeah, all sorts of tax. Um, we, we do tax opinions or, or work with the banks or the... Um, title companies and the 1031 exchanges. Uh, so are you mostly focusing on international clients or do you have a mix of both or? It's a definite mix. When you work in South Florida, most families are multinational. You could have, you know, the grandfather that's non-US or a son or a father. So it just winds up kind of being in the mix for many of the clients that we see. All right, that's great. So let's uh, kind of go over to the other side of the law um, with uh, Bob doing family law. So how are, how, how does a family lawyer, what do they have to do with, um, real estate? What does that have anything to do with, you know, real estate or anything along those lines? I actually deal with real estate a lot when I'm representing clients. So for instance, in a prenuptial agreement, if property is owned by one of the parties and they want to preserve it, then we have to deal with the ownership of that property and the interest that the spouse-to-be will or will not have in that property once they get married and what happens to that property if they dissolve their marriage or if one of them dies while they are married. In a divorce um, situation, it's similar. Um, we have to deal with what properties exist for the parties, whether they're marital or non-marital, and how to get through the process so that in a divorce, there's a division of assets and liabilities called equitable distribution. And properties may be sold, title may be transferred to one of the parties. Um, I'm working on an agreement now where 
there's an, a, home, a home, an office condo, um, another condominium, two boat slips. And so all of those have to be dealt with and transferred uh, during the divorce process. So I'm constantly dealing with recording deeds, preparing and, re well, I don't re prepare that many deeds, some quick claim deeds, um, but dealing with the um, preparation of transfer documents, communicating with other attorneys who may be um, formally handling the transfer of the documents, the cost of maintaining the properties is taken into consideration um, in a divorce as well. So that's mostly what I'm doing. Okay, so I have two lawyers in front of me. And so how, if I wanted to protect my asset, I guess, am I going to you, for instance, Elisa, to protect me so I can have the best, um, I guess, um, way to save money from taxes and then am i going for instance to to bob to make sure that it's protected for you know my my future generations or from a spouse or are, am i going to one of you or how like so how many how many people do i need working on my i guess my asset um we do a lot of estate uh, protection at our office so if you are holding an investment property then you want that to go into an entity of some sort so that at least you can um, protect it from outside creditors um, but you're not so what you do doesn't protect necessarily from internal um, like within the family for instance like uh, Bob does um, you're no, it's usually part of the family you know, you're, you're holding it for the family. Okay, okay. Uh -huh. um, and, and in addition to asset protection, there's estate planning, which is setting it up one way or another. Sometimes we're also, we prepare quick claim, quick claim deeds as well, where we're transferring properties into trusts or other entities so that they can be set up and transfer automatically upon death as um, the owner wishes so it doesn't have to go through probate or so that there isn't a mess after someone's death um, passes away and everything's set up. So I'm actually glad that you, um, well, I'm not glad, but uh, speaking of uh, passing away, how does that affect um, what you do, Bob? How, how does uh, death or those types of issues affect what you're suggesting or advising your clients to do. That especially comes into play when I'm working on a prenuptial agreement. So there are two main areas that are addressed in a prenuptial agreement. One is what happens if there's a divorce, and the other is what happens if one of the uh, couple dies while they're married. Um, really answering your prior question, when does someone go to Elisa or when does someone go to me? It depends upon where they are in their life and their level of wealth as well. Um, asset protection is more and more important as you have more and more wealth. Um, but if you're getting married and you have assets, you come to me for a prenuptial agreement because I can provide extra protection for you um, through a prenuptial agreement and the, the spouse-to-be can waive any interest they may otherwise have in the property um, upon marriage. So under Florida law, when you get married, property that you have coming into the marriage 
is not marital subject to being divided. But if you put money into that non-marital property, such as you had a house and you get married and you're paying the mortgage with marital funds or you're adding an addition to the house with marital funds, there becomes a marital component to that house. And so if there's a divorce, then that can become very complicated, very expensive. And even though you think it's your house and you got married and you had that house already, your spouse may have an interest in it. Um, similarly with a business, if you come into a, a marriage with a, a business or you have invested in limited partnerships in real estate and you don't have a prenuptial agreement, your spouse very well could wind up having an interest in it upon your death or upon a divorce. Why would I get a prenup if everything I have is a premarital asset? You try to avoid future fighting and disputes. So if you have an asset coming into your marriage and you want to share it with who you're marrying, then it doesn't matter, you know, don't need a prenuptial agreement. Most people who get married and own assets want to preserve those assets so that if they get divorced, their spouse is not going to have a claim on the asset. Even though under Florida law, they don't have a claim on the asset per se, they may have a claim on it if, as I said before, marital funds or efforts are, are expended on the premarital asset, um, or there's appreciation due to the um, efforts of one of the parties. So a lot of people have retirement accounts. Under Florida law, when you have a retirement account, what you've accumulated during your marriage, uh, before your marriage is non-marital. What you accumulate after your marriage is marital. I tell people when I'm working on a prenuptial agreement that, to cre to, that they should create a separate retirement account so that all of the um, contributions during the marriage, if they want it to be marital, will be segregated and you don't have to worry about the difficult and expensive process of valuing the premarital component. If you have a house or a business that you're coming into the marriage with, then you want to um, set, basically you set it aside. So I'm working on a divorce now where I'm representing a very wealthy person and a very wealthy family and the wife signed a prenuptial agreement and she's not going to have a claim in the family business. There are plenty of families who tell their children and grandchildren, you will have a prenuptial agreement when you're getting married because we don't want your spouse to be, to make a claim on anything involving the business or the trust we have, etc. So it, it's become much more prevalent as I've been practicing. It used to be that I would work on maybe one or two a year. And now it could be 20 a year. I'm working on three at one time right now. Okay, so let's kind of do the opposite of divorce. Uh, let's go towards the, the, I guess, the happier side. Um, so let's say uh, somebody's getting married and they bring in a premarital asset, for instance, a home of theirs, but they want to add their spouse to it. Do I need to make a quick claim deed or because obviously, like you said, this is a premarital asset, so the spouse would have no claim to it um, unless funds or uh, unless marital funds, I guess, are 
put into it. So what would I have to do or what would the person have to do, for instance, um, to bring in their spouse, their new spouse into, I guess, the equity? Some type of um, deed will, would have to be recorded because you want to make sure that the rest of the world knows that the spouse has a claim to the, to the property. And it doesn't have to be an equal interest, um, but you can basically transfer from the person who owned it to both of them. If they do it during their marriage and they transfer it as husband and wife, then it, it creates certain legal rights and powers and limitations, including claims of creditors who can't go after that property. Can Real, real quick, before I uh, uh, go over to Elisa to help answer that, what, what do you mean by creditors not being able to go after a piece of property because um, go, go more into that. If you own property in your individual name and it is not your residence, if you get, for instance, in a car accident and someone sues you and gets a judgment against you, they can go after your interest in that property. If it's your residence, it is protected under the Florida Constitution and so creditors cannot go after your interest in the house. In fact, the reason why you signed a mortgage, um, among other reasons, is that it waives that protection under the Florida Constitution so that if you don't pay the, the, make the payments on the note, then the holder of the mortgage can foreclose on the, on the property and take title to the property. Uh, did, you, did you want to add something to that, Elisa? transfer of property to a spouse, if that comes up, there's, there is transfer tax in the United States, including the gift tax, which is up to 40%. However, in general, a transfer between spouses is tax-free because of the marital deduction, but it's important from the international side to also pay attention to if, one of the, if the receiving spouse is a non-U.S. person, and that includes and that means non-citizen. Even if you're a green card holder, you don't get the full marital deduction and it's far reduced. So you can't freely transfer something like a house to your spouse as you can if you're both U.S. So can you talk a little bit about gifts? Um, so if, if you're saying that there's a major tax on, um, I guess, estates when somebody passes away, why would somebody not just gift, for instance, their $10 million home to their children or something like that? Okay, so Elisa, what happens, uh, for instance, let's say um, parents own a property or something along those lines and they've got multiple kids and one kid, I guess, becomes a recluse and they want to not have them involved or not have them have a claim on, on assets. Uh, what, what can be done? property in a trust is a very good way to control family dynamics like that. Um, you can impose restrictions on what a reclusive son like that or child would receive, um, whether it's um, a, a monthly limited to a monthly income or um, whether it's completely writing that child out of your estate plan. Um, okay, so... 
basically they have the ability, if it's written down, to protect whatever they have, whether it be through taxes or through uh, other family claims, by, I guess, structuring it properly and making sure that if they have um, a prenup or something along those lines, that everything they have is protected. Um, so we are getting towards the end of our time. So I want to say thank you to you both for speaking to us. I think this is a definitely an interesting topic and it proves that you need assistance. Um, when going into real estate, you need your legal professionals, you need your, you know, your, your real estate professionals and things like that to basically lead you along the way because there are so many things and intricacies, for instance, like you were talking about, Elisa, like how you hold the property. I mean, who knows if everybody knows, you know, that, that that's even a possibility or, for instance, uh, the premarital asset and, or having a, um, a prenup to protect it. So it's, it's definitely interesting to know that, that there's ways to protect yourself and your family and um, basically generations to come by structuring it and having the legal documents. So uh, I want to I want to thank you both for uh, speaking with us, teaching our uh, listeners a little bit more about the legality of real estate, um, and also to accentuate how all three of us kind of got into real estate in pretty different manners. Um, basically, just again, proving that there's a million different ways of being involved in real estate, um, whether you own properties, work in your private, um, you know, professional lives, dealing with real estate. So I want to thank you all again. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. All righty. We did it. We completed our first season. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I know our guests gave us some great information and our listeners now have even better resources to utilize in their own real estate ventures. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I know it takes a lot of time and uh, commitment to get through each episode. So I want to thank each and every one of you. We want to thank our past guests. So if you have not listened to all of the episodes, please go ahead, go back, Listen, they have awesome information, and again, they are amazing resources that are more than willing to help you in your own real estate ventures going forward. We're also going to have a lot of excellent new guests that I'm excited about who are sure to give you guys game-changing info to help you succeed in your own real estate careers. So thank you again for sticking with us so far. There's so much more to come, and I'm excited to get to work bringing the best real estate content possible on a podcast. So we will see you next season on the green.